church. Please stand and join us as we sing our praises to God together. This first song is one that might be new to you and we wanted to teach it to you. So please feel free to listen and to join us in singing as soon as you get how it goes. Just like a tree that grows by the water. Let the strong winds blow, I will not move. Just like a child secure in the love of a father. Never letting go, I cling to you. In every situation, no room for fear and doubt. No matter what. 
Sing. 
Father, it's hard to put into words. That you are good. That your mercy is forever. That you are for us and you created us to bless us. We pray today that in our worship, we will honor you with our songs, our words, our thoughts, and the openness of our hearts to receive all that you desire to give in your goodness and your mercy and your grace. Thank you for being here with us. We pray this through Christ. Amen. Let me encourage you to take a moment, share a word of greeting with others here in worship today. I just wanted to mention that uh, we want to give thanks to God. We have a new uh, member of our church family, Daria Louise Newborough, uh, was born to Bill John and uh, Yulia on Thursday. Uh, yeah, and so we want to give thanks to God for uh, blessing their lives and our lives uh, with the gift of the, this new birth. What a privilege it is to, uh, on this third Sunday of the month, we always have mission spots, or generally, and a privilege to reintroduce to some of you and to introduce for the first time some of you, Joel and Barbara Trudell. Now, if I talk, they don't get to talk, and we have a clock ticking, you know. But they've been serving with Wycliffe Bible translators in leadership positions. They started in Peru, but 30 years in Africa. Uh, real privilege to have supported them from the beginning, almost out of the starting gates as graduates. So let's hear from Joel and Byron. Just back, actually, from Africa. It's 30 years total, not just in Africa. So, And we started very young, just so you want to know. <laughs> so you all probably know that Bible translation is central to the work of Wycliffe Bible Translators and their field uh, partner, SIL. But increasingly, we're finding uh, the importance of uh, engaging and collaborating with um, other organizations, other agencies, governments, community organizations themselves, in order to build a supportive environment for the use of these minority languages. And that means people being able to read and write in their own language, but it also means policies and practices in church and in society that will allow these people to use their languages for education, for spiritual growth, uh, and for strengthening the church. Uh, we'll be talking more about these kinds of issues in the Kaleidoscope uh, Sunday School meeting after this. You know, you don't just get out of bed one day and think, hmm, I think I'll go into Bible translation. Um, it's a process. It helps to grow up in churches that 
um, value scripture, that value missions. It's also a personal process. And when we were going through this personal process, we were members of the Houghton Wesleyan Church, and we got encouragement, we got prayer, we got support. And over the years, we've had encouragement and prayers and support, and it means just as much to us now as it did then. Thank you. I'd like to invite the ushers forward as we give back to God from all that he has blessed us with.
going to shift the prayer time to a little later, perhaps when we're under conviction from the message. I'm not sure, but uh, let's hear what the Word of God says that we need to open our ears to. Third series we're doing with the Minor Prophets, for those of you who aren't here regularly. So today we're reading from Amos, selections from the book of Amos. Jumping around a bit, but it's listed in your uh, bulletins. The prophet Amos, starting with chapter 1. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa. The vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. He said, The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. Chapter 2. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God they drink wine taken as fines. Chapter 5. This is what the Lord says to Israel. Seek me and live. Seek good, not evil that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil. Love good. Maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Chapter 9. I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins. I will rebuild it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand and sing with us, and at this time, children may be dismissed for Children's Church and Junior Church. Yeah. 
spent and worthless love compared to this knowing you Jesus knowing you there is no greater thing you're my heart nothing less you're my joy my righteousness and I Please be seated. It pains me to say this, but um, I struggle with being selfish. Now, on one hand, you know, you're probably thinking, wow, that's impossible. You certainly couldn't struggle with that. On the other hand, you're all saying, yeah, I understand that. And one of the reasons you understand that is because if we're all, we're all to be honest... We would have to admit that every one of us struggles with being selfish. 
It's, it's not something that a few select people deal with. It's not something that, you know, that this group of people or that group of people struggles with. It is a part of being human that we struggle with being selfish. And it works itself out in a variety of ways. We, we see it in our homes. We see it in the places where we work. I know it's hard to believe, but we even see it in the church. But one of the ways in which I think we see this struggle with selfishness manifesting itself is when we think about all of the things that go on in the world. All of the brokenness, the evil that we see in the world, and the sin that's so prevalent in the world, and the consequences of evil and sin in the world. And and we see our selfishness manifested when we read these things, and we see these things, and we hear about these things, and we can walk away from them caring very little about it. And if we are a part of the kingdom of God, that's a problem. Because even though we may struggle to care about some of the problems and issues and, and, and things going on in the world, one of the things that scripture is, is without hesitation clear about is that God cares. And that's what is underlying the prophecy of Amos. God cares about the burdens that people go through. God cares about evil and the consequences of evil and sin and the consequences of sin. God cares about all of that. And that's why he sends the prophet Amos. He sends Amos to speak his word to people who don't care. Amos is a shepherd in Judah. And we talk about being a shepherd, automatically what comes to our mind is probably people who are uneducated. They are typically viewed as insignificant in culture. They, they are probably poor. They don't have a lot of time to spend in the temple. But, but the description of Amos seems to be a little bit different. It seems to describe someone who is sort of an overseer of shepherds. And, and he probably is a man who has some degree of wealth. He has some degree of, of education. He has some de- certainly is connected to the worship in Judah of Yahweh. And so God puts his hand on, on Amos. Amos is not a professional prophet. In chapter 7, he has this encounter with uh, Amaziah, who's one of the leading prophets of Israel. And he sa- Amaziah says, you know, if you want a king, says to him, look, you want to be a prophet, fine. You, you go practice your pro- prophetic word other places. And he says, I'm not a prophet. I'm just a shepherd. I'm just out doing my job, taking care of my business. And God put his hand on me and said, go. Because I care about what's happening. And the problem that Amos addresses is that he goes to people who don't care. Now, Amos is is a brilliant communicator. He knows how to catch people off guard. Because he begins his prophecy by talking about all of the nations around Judah and Israel. He goes to chapter 1. He goes through the, the, the things that they are doing wrong and God's punishment, God's judgment on them. He talks about Edom, he talks about Moab and Ammon and, 
and uh, Tyre and Philistia and all of these nations, all these nations that are enemies of God's people. And here is Amos, who is from Judah, up in Israel, proclaiming this prophecy. If you look back into the history of God's people, back after uh, Solomon, when Solomon died and his son Rehoboam became king of the nation, the whole nation of Israel, there was a revolt. And the ten northern tribes seceded from the rest of Judah. And they became the nation typically known as Israel and the southern nation as Judah. And they became, for the most of the time, they were in conflict with each other. And so here is, here is Amos coming from Judah to Israel. And he's proclaiming this word. And he proclaims about how God's going to judge all these nations that are Israel's enemies. And you can almost sense Israel saying, all right, good, I like this prophet. You can speak to us anytime you want to. This is great. And then he goes after Judah. And he says, Judah's in trouble too because they don't follow God. And they aren't doing what God wants. And that ups the ante even more. And you can see the people of Israel saying, all right, this is the kind of prophet I was hoping to hear. This is good news. God's going to take out our enemies. And then he says, now I have a word for you, Israel. And things turn. And the entire rest of the book is about Israel. His, his judgment, God's judgment on Israel, is severe and harsh. And he talks about destroying Israel. He talks about Israel facing the wrath of God's judgment on them. This prophecy takes place around 750 B.C. And a little over 30, a little under 30 years later, Israel will be attacked by Assyria and virtually destroyed. People taken into exile. The nation will never be what it was. And Amos comes to warn them. His warning is based on injustice in Israel. At this point in time, Israel is prosperous. They're doing well. The nation is flourishing. There's a lot of wealth. There's a lot of comfort. There's a lot of ease, at least among some people. But it's at the expense of other people. If you look at chapter 2, verse 6, and we read this earlier, this is sort of a synopsis of the whole prophecy. He says, this is what the Lord says. The people of Israel have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. And this is why. They sell honorable people for silver and poor people for a pair of sandals. They trample helpless people in the dust and shove the oppressed out of the way. Both father and son sleep with the same woman, corrupting my holy name. At their religious festivals, they lounge in clothing. Their debtors put up a security. In the house of their gods, they drink wine bought with unjust fines. They are taking advantage of the poor and the helpless. And God says, I'm not going to stand for that. Their worship doesn't mean anything. They come to worship, they, they practice the rituals, and they go back home and bribe another judge and sell someone else into slavery. And, in, and put into prison someone that owes them a few cents. And all the while, these people are living in luxury and comfort and ease. And their comfort and their luxury and their privilege has been built on the backs of all of the people who can't do anything about it. And they continue to use them and manipulate them 
to increase their wealth and their power and their comfort and their ease. And here's what frightens me a bit about Amos' prophecy. When I think about the church all over the world, it's hard for me to imagine a place in the world where the church exists with a higher level of comfort and ease and privilege than we do here. When you think about our brothers and sisters in so many places of the world who live their lives under threat of persecution, who, who live with very little and very little chance for more, and you compare their existence to ours, our situation resembles Israel about as much as anyone does. And it ought to frighten us. Because God cares. And, and God is concerned. And God will take action. And this is the word of Amos to us. Now what we have to understand is every prophecy is not just a word of judgment. It's not just God saying, I've had enough and, and, and I'm, I'm going to tell you all that I'm going to do and there's nothing you can do about it. Prophecy is given always as a warning. God comes, sends Amos to warn Israel. This is not just a word of, okay, here's what's going to happen and you better get ready for it. But he says, here's what's going to happen unless things change. And so you come to chapter 5 and you have sort of this hinge point in the prophecy. There really are very few commands here, very few things for Israel to do. Most of the prophecy is, here's what you're doing and here's what I'm going to do about it. But when you come to chapter 5, he says to to Israel, here's what I want you to do. Beginning in chapter, verse 4, seek me and live. Seek the Lord and live. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. This whole idea of seeking God is rooted in the history of God and his people. It is, the the writer of 1 Chronicles tells us that that this is really the the hinge point for what it means to be his people. In, In 1 Chronicles 22, it says, Now devote your heart and soul to seeking the Lord your God. And later in chapter 28, David says to his son Solomon, Acknowledge the God of your father, serve him with wholehearted devotion, with a willing mind, for the Lord searches every heart, understands every desire and every thought. And if you seek him... He will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. And this idea of seeking God is central to what it means to be children of God. But what does it mean to seek God? To seek God is that that moment in your life when something valuable can't be found. You know it's in the house someplace. But you just can't find it. You know you've seen it. And you need it desperately. And you go searching for it. It is. It's that, it's that heirloom. It's, it's that special piece of jewelry. It's that little wad of cash that you stuck someplace and can't remember where you put it. And what happens? Every drawer gets opened and and tossed. And everything in the closet gets pulled out. 
And, and look, you look under every bed. You pull, open up every cabinet. You, you look through all of your clothes. Did I leave it in the pocket? You go through the car. You're digging under the seat. And, of course, when that happens, you find all kinds of things that you weren't looking for. Of course, right? Yeah, sure, I can find that, but I can't find what I'm looking for. And you're looking everywhere you can. And no, you, no stone is unturned to find that. Why is that? Because it's valuable to you. It's important to you. And you want it desperately. And that's what it means to seek God. It is wanting God so desperately that we are willing to sacrifice and give of ourselves and do everything possible to find him. And to know him. And ultimately to seek God is, is to want to see and to think and to act the way God does. It is wanting the kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. It is wanting God's kingdom to be exactly what God wants it to be. And to do everything in our power to embrace that and to learn that and to know that and to live that. And this is what Amos is telling us. You want a solution to the struggles, to, to, your, to your apathetic spirit, to what God is, is concerned about in the church and in your life? What do you do? You seek him with all of your being. You want what God wants. What we're really talking about is in, in the tradition of scripture and the church is holiness. It's to be holy. It's to want what God wants. It's to want to be what God is. That word holiness often either confuses us or scares us. I grew up with the word holiness meaning strictness, rules, laws. It's it's all about fitting into a box. It's all about making sure that you're doing all the right things in the right way. It's about towing the line. And, And there is this, it's about narrowness. But actually, holiness is really pretty simple to define. What it really means to be holy is to be like Christ. To want to be like Christ. And to want to be like Christ means that we embrace love as the revelation of who God is. To be holy is to love like God does. To want to love as God loves. Someone and I were talking about that this week and they made this statement to me. They said, God is love. And, as, and because God is love, he is the lover of love. I like that. And everything about love, God loves and embraces because this is who he is. I mean, I'm convinced that all 12 of the prophets that we're talking about here, that we call the minor prophets, they were originally all in one setting, originally all in one scroll, and they were called the 12. And no one knows exactly why they're arranged in the order they're arranged. They're not arranged chronologically. They're not arranged from largest to smallest or smallest to largest. I think they're arranged thematically. I think there is a purpose to, to the arrangement of the prophets and they keep building on each other and connecting to each other. And we see it in this idea of who God is. I think ultimately the prophets are telling us this is who God is. And this is what he wants for his people. And so what does Hosea tell us? Hosea says, this is who God is. He's the God who loves you so much he pursues you endlessly. Wherever you are, wherever you go, whatever you've done, God will never give up pursuing you because he loves you. 
And Joel in chapter 2, in the midst of this prophecy about locusts and destruction, in chapter chapter 2 verse 13 says, here's what you need to do. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Why? Because he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. It's what we sang a few moments ago in that you are good. You are good. This is who God is. And to be holy is to embrace love as the essence of who God is. And to want to love as God loves. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, he says, Dear friends, let us love one another. Why? Because love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. It's not about rules. It's not about about strictness. It's about love. And love leads us to obedience. And love leads us to live the kind of life that scripture talks to us about. But it starts with love. That's what it means to be holy. That's what it means to be like Christ. And it is love in us that leads us to care about evil and the consequences of evil and the pain in this world that people experience because of evil and sin in their lives and in other people's lives and the brokenness of the world. And because we are filled with the love of Christ, we care about what happens to people even if it doesn't affect us. It's one thing to say, I'm concerned, about, I'm concerned about this evil, I'm concerned about this injustice, when it has a direct bearing on our lives. It's something else completely to care about this injustice and this pain and this evil and these consequences when we don't have really any connection to it ourselves at all. It's because the love of Christ constrains us. It's because we want to be like Christ. That we care about injustice in this world. We care about our brothers and sisters who are persecuted in other places of the world. We care about people being sold into slavery. We care about abuse and neglect. We care about, about the, the issues that people of color have in our country and in other places of the world. We care about poverty. We care about all of these issues, even if they don't directly affect us, because God cares. And the message of Amos to the people of Israel is, you may not care about these people, But I do. Because they are my beloved children. I created them. I love them. And I want to see their lives flourish. And evil and the consequences of evil and sin is creating a spirit of bondage for them, not freedom. I mean, Israel is supposed to represent God. The church is supposed to represent God. And I think the reason God is so upset with Israel 
It's not because they have somehow offended him. It's because they represent him. And people are looking at Israel and saying, so obviously either God doesn't care about people. Or actually this is the kind of God who would take advantage of people. It's God's reputation that's at stake here. And you and I, as his people, are representatives of God. We love, we get involved, we care, whether it affects us or not. And to get involved, to love, is not enough. It's not enough just to lament over the burden, the pain, the brokenness of our world. It is important to lament. It starts with lamenting. Because the opposite of lamenting is basically being apathetic. It starts with lamenting and feeling the pain of it. But ultimately, it, be, it ends up being risk-taking involvement. Because the love is always to take a risk. You cannot love without sacrificing. We, talk, we, we can talk about loving, but we don't really love if we're not willing to sacrifice to take risks. How do we know that God loves us? John says he loved the world so much that he sent. He gave. He lived. He died. The prophet Isaiah says, in speaking of the Messiah, he was wounded for our transgressions. Our sins were placed upon him. By his wounds, we are healed. To love is to be involved, to take risks, to to stretch ourselves, to even be willing to be hurt. Not because we're going to gain anything from it, but because we have the heart of Christ, heart of love and compassion for people. I suspect that one of the reasons why we struggle with with really lamenting the pain and evil that, that leads to us being involved and being active and taking risks and standing up for people and for situations that don't have anything to do with us because, quite frankly, sometimes it just becomes overwhelming. I mean, there, there, there is so much heart heartbreak in the world. There's so much brokenness. There's so much pain. There is so much evil. There's so many consequences to evil. And we keep reading and seeing more and more about it. And it's overwhelming to us. And our our response is typically to just say, I'm just going to shut it off. It's going to be done. And we don't have to solve every problem. We don't have to address every problem. We just have to be open to the things that God puts right in front of us. We just have to do what is right in front of us. We have to love right in front of us. And that might mean situations that are right around us in our, in our community, in, our, in the communities around us, in our county. It might be things that are going on in other places of the world. What is God burdening us about? And are we willing to get involved, to do something, to care? To lament so much that we actively love as Christ loves.
When it came to the, when you come to the end of Amos's prophecy, there is this what feels like an addendum, because all the whole time he's been talking about judgment, and and their sin and injustice and all the things are happening. And you get to the verse eleven of chapter nine, and it, it just sort of turns on its head. And and at this point he says, in that day I will restore the fallen house of David. I will repair its damaged walls from the ruins. I will rebuild it, restore its former glory. Israel will possess what's left of Edom and all the nations I've called to be mine. The Lord has spoken. He'll do these things. The time will come, says the Lord, when the grain and grapes will grow faster than they can be harvested. The terraced vineyards on the hills of Israel will drip with sweet wine. I'll bring my exiled people of Israel back from distant lands. They'll rebuild their ruined cities, live in them again. They'll plant vineyards and gardens. They'll eat their crops and drink their wine. I'll firmly plant them there in their own land. And they will never again be uprooted from the land I've given them, says the Lord your God. And I think... What Amos is telling us is that the reason we do all of this, the reason we care about people, the reason we care about circumstances, the reason we lament the the brokenness and pain of our world is because that day is coming. On that day, on the day of the Lord, God is going to put everything to right. God is going to reveal exactly what he has always planned for his people. And when we read this prophecy, it's that day because it's always been God's created design for his world to flourish. When God created Adam and Eve, he created them to flourish. It's only because sin entered the world that all of the flourishing was twisted and broken and torn apart. But God's plan from the beginning and God's ultimate plan on that day is flourishing. And because we know that day is coming, we can live now bringing about, as God enables us, places of flourishing even today. Because when Scripture talks about that day, it's not just talking about some time in the future. It's talking about now, too. It's talking about your kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. Your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And our calling is to be agents of God for healing and grace and flourishing and justice. Now. Because if it's what God is going to do then, then we know it's what God wants us to be a part of now. So my question for us is what do we what do we lament about evil and sin and the consequences of evil and sin and brokenness and hurt and injustice do we lament do we feel it do we ache about it the way God does And are we open in that lament to follow him as he leads us, to love as he calls us, to be agents of healing and grace in this world of brokenness and pain and need? It seemed to me that maybe the best thing for us to do this morning at this moment would be to pray. 
to offer up our lament to God, to, to confess our sins of, of apathy, our, our sins of, of just not wanting to love as God wants us to love. And so we're going to spend a few moments doing that, lamenting the pain and the brokenness of the world and asking God, what do you want me to do? It may be that, that you want to come and kneel here at the altar rail and offer your prayers. Maybe you want to just turn around and, and kneel in your pew or you, can, or you want to just sit there. But we want to spend a few moments praying together. So if you want to come, let me invite you to come. If you want to kneel, let me invite you to do that. If you just want to sit, please feel free to do that as well. But we're going to spend a few moments of silence together and then offering prayers about the burdens and the needs of our world. Father, in this moment of silence, hear our prayers of confession, our honest prayers about our hearts, and open our eyes, our hearts, as you speak to us. Father, we pray that you will open our eyes to the needs of the world. That our lament would lead us to love and compassion and risk-taking involvement, sacrifice. So in this moment, hear our prayers to open our eyes and and to, to help us see what you might want us to do. Father, we pray that, that you, will, you will pour out your spirit on your world. We pray, Father, that, that you will help us and your people to be agents of healing and grace, of, of justice and love and mercy and goodness as you have been to us and continue to be. 
We pray, Father, that, that you will bring peace in places of war and threats of war. We pray that you will pour out your blessing upon refugees whose lives have been torn apart by war, persecution, famine, drought. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters, particularly those in the Central Africa Republic, who live every day with, with the, the threat of, of violence and opposition. And we pray that you will, you will give to them hope. Father, we pray for our nation that's seeming to be more and more divided as people who feel neglected and who live with patterns of injustice cry out, Father, don't let us become passive or even antagonistic. But give us compassion to see past the rhetoric to the pain and the heartache and the brokenness and the need. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness in our lives, for your word of grace and mercy to each of us. And as we think about our lives, we think about people who are grieving, and we pray that you will comfort them in their pain. We pray for people who are struggling with health issues, and we ask, Father, that that you will watch over each of them. We pray especially for Brian Orbacher as he is facing surgery this week. And we pray that that you will minister grace to him and to his family. And for others among us and connected to us who are going through difficulties, may they know your presence and make help us to be people who, who do what we can to ease suffering and to support them. Father, we pray for Barb and Joel Trudell as they continue their work with Wycliffe, opening doors of hope through literacy and through your word. Thank you for their ministry to so many people. Continue to bless them and encourage them and keep them strong and healthy as you lead them forward. And for the Little Valley Wesleyan Church and Pastor Butcher, may they be a beacon of light and hope in their community and beyond as well. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for loving this world and for loving us so much that you give us the privilege of being your agents of love. Father, continue to break our hearts for the things that break your heart. Help us to see this world the way you see that we might more faithfully represent you. And we ask all of this through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.
Amen. Please stand and join us as we sing. Communion with the living God is what I'm longing for. His presence is more priceless than all things. And at my broken heart, he stands knocking at the door. I'll let him in and sing my grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.